0: Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We are still in the first chapter. We will more or less wrap up the first chapter this evening, and if not, we'll certainly get close to it. But before we jump back into the epistle, I did just want to continue to thank all of you who are tuning in by way of podcast in the countries of Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Canada, Mexico, uh, Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, South Africa, India, China, I see all of you on the grid. It is always so humbling to uh, see that so many of you are taking time out of your busy schedules to join me as we reflect into the richness of the sacred text. and of course, we are now in this study on Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth, a letter, my friends, that as you well know, is very active. It is lively. It is constant in its encouragement. It is constant in its challenge. It is constant in its exhortation to you and I to become the best version of who God is calling us to be. Yesterday evening we were really talking about the proclamation of the gospel that is the divine paradox. Now, this evening we are going to talk about uh, the proclamation of how we are called to receive this gospel of divine paradox. So an important evening as we, again, are setting time aside to reflect into the inspired Word of God, something we should never lose sight of, my friends, that this is the inspired Word of God, that yes, St. Paul authored this epistle, but he authored it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I was driving over here this evening and reflecting about that and how many times do we write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? How many things do we do each and every day that are under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Do we aspire to write and live under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? If, if nothing else, my friends, when we read sacred scripture, we should be reminded that it is God working through His human vessels, through His clay vessels, so as to communicate His very life and love. So, a very important point to be had, and just not for this evening, because we're going to be talking about that this evening, but also each and every evening, because we can never lose sight of what it means to not only be under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but also, in the words of St. John the Evangelist, be in the Spirit, be caught up in the Spirit, that all that we do in the end is inspired by God. Okay. So with that, let us get back into this first chapter. And what I want to do here is just read the last few verses of this Gospel of Divine Paradox, verses 24 to 25. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, I have already talked about wisdom and I've already talked about what it means to empty ourselves. I'm not going to get back into that right now. But what I do want to talk about is more of a footnote than anything else. It is important not to interpret Paul as if he is rejecting all philosophy or theology that uses reason, enlightened by faith, to reflect on the meaning of revelation. What Paul is speaking to is about the self sufficiency of those who rely on reason alone and reason distorted by sin and pride to attain the fullness of truth. The Christian church never disregards reason. No, it sees reason as an intrinsic good, We use our reason each and every day to make sound decisions and also to better understand the God who is love but never at the cost of faith. We never replace faith with, say, experience, like the Enlightenment did. It's not experience and reason, it's faith and reason. Uh, It's not see and come, it's come and see. So, an important footnote, because I fear that there can be a tendency to sometimes uh, disregard reason or focus too much on self-sufficiency, all the while relying too much on reason. Now, what about the call we have to receive this gospel of divine paradox well that is what you have in verses what 26 to 31 so if you have your bibles out there if you do want to go ahead and turn to paul's first letter to the church of corinth chapter 1 verses 26 to 31 consider your own calling brothers not many of you were wise by human standards not many were powerful not many were of noble birth Rather, God chose the foolish of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak of the world to shame the strong, and God chose the lowly and despised of the world, those who count for nothing to reduce to nothing those who are something, so that no human being might boast before God. It is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, as well as righteousness sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, whoever boasts should boast in the Lord. So here we have this call to receive this great paradox, to attain the riches of God in this humble disposition. I was reflecting into this this morning, and I was made to go back to that letter (laughs) that I think I've shared on one or two other occasions that letter to Jesus. And I I think this letter uh, that I'm going to share here very much captures the essence of what Paul is talking about, especially as it speaks to calling and being called. And this is a letter that is penned to Jesus, son of Joseph, Woodcrafter's Shop, Nazareth, from the Jordan Management Consultants, Jerusalem. The subject of this letter is staff aptitude test and the date is May 22nd, 30 AD. The letter is as follows. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you picked for your management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also have arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational consultant. It is of the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability, and improving capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and gives in to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine team morale. <laughs> we feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, a son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic-depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contact in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and innovative. We highly recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Okay, well, well, there you have it. What that letter demonstrates, my friends, is that the first motley crew, if you will, are those 12 apostles, are they not? I mean, listen now to Paul's words again. Consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. How do you not think of the 12, huh? (laughs) Rather, God chose the foolish of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak of the world to shame the strong, and God chose the lowly and despised of the world, those who count for nothing, to reduce to nothing those who are something, so that no human being might boast before God. Isn't it interesting that from the human vantage point, the one that was qualified was Judas Iscariot? What is the old adage? God does not call the qualified, but qualifies the call. Is this not what this is about? If God has shown a lack of wisdom in determining to save the world by the cross, he has shown the same folly, my friends, in the type of persons he has chosen to receive the gift. The calling here that Paul asks them to consider picks up what? But the called theme we've already talked about in verse 2, and very much here applies it to the concrete circumstances of their coming to the faith. Three times, Paul says, God chose. What does he do when he says, God chose? Does he not make it clear that it was his gift, not their prowess or merit, or if you were to personalize this, our prowess or merit? that ultimately brings about new status. God bypasses the world's wise and powerful in order to what? What do we read in Paul's second epistle to the church of Corinth? He chooses the lowly because he's seeking vessels of clay. There is that all-important phrase. That person who is willing and disposed to be shaped and formed by God that person who has not constructed a false world around him, brick by brick. No, the person who is lowly, the person, my friends, who is foolish for God. No, he is willing to be shaped and formed by God. The series of the foolish, the weak, and the lowly, and despised certainly climaxes with those who what? What did he say? Count for nothing, to reduce to nothing, those who are something. The power, my friends, is in the poverty of the cross, the power of Christ, and the power of the resurrection. Now, for flesh to boast before God is Paul's way of describing humanity's self-proclaimed independence from God, huh? Priding itself on its talents, priding itself on its wisdom, priding itself on its strength, as if they were not God's gifts, How many of you have done that? Patted yourself on your shoulder? Mea culpa. (laughs) Mea culpa. We boast in God alone. We read later in this epistle, in chapter 4, verse 7. But if you have received it, why are you boasting as if you did not receive it? God's calling the lowly, certainly, we could say, has turned human pride on its head. As it should because it brings us back to who we are. But there is boasting in the Lord, which is quite different, and it is consistent with what has already happened in Corinth, where the new Christians now exist in Christ Jesus, as that verse points out. In Christ Jesus. We have to do everything in Christ Jesus, not outside of Christ Jesus. But inside, remember, we are baptized into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is this immersion. There is this becoming one. Why do I emphasize this? Because when we are in Christ Jesus, we see as Jesus sees. We see as God sees. This new avenue that we walk down changes everything that we do. You know, Benedict XVI once said, let God surprise you. Let God show you why each and every encounter you have, whether it be at home, at the workplace, or maybe your local fitness center, belongs properly to God. Let everything you do be for God. So it is not about rhetoric or championing individual ministers that counts, but a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He became for us wisdom from God wisdom from God. Again, something we have already spoken to a great deal. Jesus is also God's righteousness. This word righteousness also translates as justice. This is certainly a term that will be a major issue in Paul's letter to the Romans. At one level, it means God's saving justice, his, his faithfulness to his own sworn word, his promise to save his people. But it also refers to the concrete way he did it by sending his son to restore humanity's broken relationship with God, and thus we could say setting them right in his sight. As a Jew and Pharisee, certainly Paul had sought righteousness through observance of the law, but his dramatic conversion convinced him that righteousness came with accepting in faith the gift of God in Jesus Christ as shown in the love that led Jesus to his death on the cross. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who did not know sin, so that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. The holiness of God in him. The consecratedness of God in him. Essentially what it means to be sanctified in him. And so, in what way is Jesus our sanctification? The Greek word indicates a process or its result. Now, Jesus has sanctified us, and thus we have become what? Saints to the extent that we are always caught up in this process of becoming sanctified people, consecrated people. I mean, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1? making holiness perfect in the fear of God. Elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, St. Paul says, may the God of peace make you holy through and through. My dear friends, holiness is a process of dying to self. And the topic of holiness is something that I get uh, asked about a lot. Holiness simply defined, my friends, is to live in the presence of God. Earlier, I was talking about being caught up in the Spirit. Holiness simply defined is to live in the Spirit because in that way, we receive, right, the gospel of divine paradox. The gospel of divine paradox. Now, how about this word that we get in these verses, redemption? The word redemption in the Greek literally means the buying back of a slave or captive by paying a ransom to set him free. In the New Testament, it refers to Christ paying the price of his blood to set free those held captive or enslaved by sin. It can also refer to the state of freedom in which the freed find themselves. And is this not why Jesus came, that we might be free from sin, free from that enslavement, free from that entrapment. I don't know about you, my friends, but when we have Jesus Christ in our hearts, does it not give you a sense of freedom to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ in both word and deed? We've all experienced it, the flip side. Maybe we find ourselves in the muck and mire of our sin, and we can't get out of it. But when we reconcile ourselves with God. And for Catholics, go to the sacrament of confession. You know, the sacrament of confession is about what? Contrition and resolution. Contrition means what? Sorrow. And there it is about being sorry for our sin, right? Well, what does resolution mean? Resolution, of course, speaks to being resolved to change. It's one thing to be sorry for your sin and another thing to be resolved to change. The word resolution in the Latin resolutio literally translates as this kind of decompression or the alleviation or the loosening, if you will. We get ourselves all wound up. And what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Do not be anxious. Do not worry. Do not be preoccupied, right? Do not get yourself in a bind by worrying about things you cannot control. No. Be sorry for your sin, and be resolved to change. Give yourself totally and entirely to me. Allow me to provide for you, and then you will be free. When you are resolved to change, you will be able to exhale, again, to loosen. I find that very important because we've all experienced that, I think, existentially, that, that sense of true freedom, that sense of true freedom. And what more can we say, huh? This phrase, whoever boasts should boast in the Lord. This is Paul's abbreviated rendering of what we find in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 22 to 23. Thus says the Lord, not the wise boast of his wisdom, nor the powerful boast of his strength, nor the rich boast of his riches, but let the one who boasts boast of this to understand and know that I am the Lord who does judgment and righteousness on the earth. Here I'm reminded of that great encounter between St. Thomas Aquinas and our Lord, that great encounter between our Lord on the cross and St. Thomas Aquinas, when he heard our Lord speak to him from the cross, you have written well of me, Thomas, what would you have for your reward And what did Thomas respond with? But only you, Lord, only you. What more could we possibly desire than the very presence of God? What more could we desire than to be living in God's presence? What do you think we are looking for, seeking and desiring when we want to be joyful, when we want to be happy? when we want to experience that uplifting spirit, are we not looking for God himself? I often equate this with my own relationship with my wife because when I'm away from her, I just want to be with her. I long to be with her. And I find this especially true when I am away, maybe at a parish, giving a talk or a conference. I find myself pining to be with her And I have to remind myself that even my pining to be with my wife, as noble as that might be, is only a shadow of a much deeper truth of my longing to be in God's presence. My wife's presence brings me great joy. My wife's presence lifts my spirits, huh? Again, this is only a shadow of what awaits us in the heavenly Jerusalem. And isn't this worth getting excited about, my friends? I mean, this is just worth rejoicing over. Remember, the word grace comes from the same Greek word that gives us rejoice, because to live in God's grace, to live in God's presence, is to what? Is to rejoice. When the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, the angel says what? Rejoice, O highly favored one, or hail full of grace the first proclamation of the New Testament is what? Joy, grace. This is what we long for. And how do we attain this joy? How do we attain this grace? Well, by receiving the gospel of divine paradox. Could we not say that Mary is the model disciple in this sense? Is she not the queen of the anawim of God? Anoim is just the Hebrew for the poor of God, right? Is Mary not the queen of the poor? of God? Of course she is. So, how can we find ourselves in Paul's message to the Corinthians here? It may be helpful to start with Paul's calling them immature, even infants in the faith, a phrase we hear in chapter 3, verse 1. Children grow in self-realization by the affirmation of what? But the love of their parents, and others, and and also by their achievements, from beginning to speak to tying their shoes to graduation. All of these things essentially bring a sense of achievement. In adolescence, most teenagers feel a great need for what but belonging, whether it be to a team, whether it be to a youth group, or as I've talked about before, in some cases, even a gang still a bit uncertain of their own identity, they find assurance in what? A group that accepts them, right? At times, however, youth can be so needy of acceptance by their peers, they lose uh, the sense of their individual worth. They compromise their values to achieve that acceptance and will even go so far as to engage in put downs of other persons or groups. This is a phase that in many cases most grow out of but sometimes, could we not say, adults lapse into a certain adolescence? Such was the case with the Corinthians, and such is the case with some Christians today, mea culpa. Do we make unhealthy comparisons of our parish with other parishes, of our community with other communities, of our work with others' work? My dear friends, it is about inserting ourselves into the very church of Corinth, and hearing these words for the first time, that they might resonate with us as they resonated with the Corinthians 2,000 years ago, huh? This is why we need to spend time with these verses, and this is why I am constant in encouraging all of you to read these verses before you hear them from me, to read these verses before you pick up any commentary. You know, I have these commentaries before me, books before me, and I draw from them. And in so many ways, our program is enriched by their words. But the most important thing we can do in our study is first pray with the text and put yourself into this text, hearing it for the first time, even if you've heard it 100 times. You know, you're probably asking me, Joe, how do you do that? Close your eyes. Invoke the presence of the Holy Spirit. And as you invoke the presence of the Holy Spirit, ask God to put into your heart whatever it is that He wants you to see and to internalize. You might actually find this quite easy. Why? Because every other time that you've heard this passage and any other passage that you might sit down to read, you heard in a different life context, right? I mean, how many times have you heard the parable of the prodigal son? And how many times have you applied the parable of the prodigal son differently given your state of life? I'm sure many of you are right now shaking your head saying, yep, I've done that before. Because you're hearing it, my friends, in a place you have never been before. And so if we are going to get the most out of our study, let us hear these words for the first time and ask God, Lord, what is it that you want Me to hear, to see, to internalize. Amen. Amen. All right, let us wrap up with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of this time we have together to just reflect into the richness of your word and how your word instructs, guides, encourages us to live that vocation you have called us to live. One that is always rooted in charity all glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end amen and god bless you thanks for listening to seeds of truth